not stingrays, not right at all. And the shiny red one with the with the banana seat and the handlebars, that's the one I'm looking at. And as he'd done it other times later in my life, he said, Michael, which of these typhoons do you want? I said, I don't, I, I, I don't want, I want one of those up front. Well, in his quiet way, there was no, no negotiation on this. It's like the only thing I choose is the color of the typhoon. And so I chose a big red bicycle. And guys, the, I did not get the bike I wanted. And I was dying. I won't tell you. My response was so embarrassing that I, I've told my daughters what I did afterwards and my wife, but I swore them to secrecy when I did because I don't want that to get out. So let me ask you, um, when you get what you thought you really wanted, is that always a good thing? You know, I'm desperate for something. I really want something. And we, we in life, we want all kinds of things. So I really want to be a Jayhawk when I grow up. Or I really don't want to be a Jayhawk. I want to be a wildcat. Or I really want that girl or that guy to become my spouse. Or I want that career. I want to be a musician or an accountant. Uh, I want my politician to win. Uh, Do you guys find sometimes you pray and sometimes the desperation levels vary in prayer, but God, I've got to have that. Whatever else. I can't live without this or that in my life. And, And all that, you know, with time, all of that changes, doesn't it? Time changes our perspective on all kinds of things. But in the moment... Getting what we really, really want is not always a good thing. Sometimes it's disastrous. Sometimes the kindest thing God does to our prayers of requests is to say no. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So we're talking this morning about getting what we want in our series, Awaiting the King. And guys, I know it's the Christmas season, and we're, this sounds odd, but this is sort of an anti-Christmas message in the sense that we're talking less about the king than the anti-king this morning. Because in the progression in Judges and Ruth and Samuel up to the king of God's choosing, King David, you got this individual between the judges and King David. And friends, it's not only historic, but it's also something for the future. That before Christ's second coming, before His return to the earth, there's going to be someone else that the earth says they really, really want. And this is their guy, and it's not King Jesus. And so this morning, we're looking at what Israel really, really wanted in their day. They really wanted a king, and they get the king that they really, really wanted, and it turns out not to be such a great thing after all, before they get the king of God's choosing. So I hope by the end we wind back up to Christ, to Jesus, but we're going down in the pit a bit before we get there. So it's about 1100 B.C., roughly. And you remember, we've already talked about Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges, and he's getting a little older. And he's got some grown sons who have these leadership positions down in the south of Israel around Beersheba, and they're not like dad. And the nation's looking at them and thinking they're going to replace Samuel. We're not so sure that's a good thing. So this is from 1 Samuel 8. Uh, I'm going to read from 4 through 9. This includes most of that, but not all. Uh, the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, hey, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. They're not like you. 
So appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. All the nations around us have kings. We want a king. You're getting old. You're phasing out. Give us a king, not your sons. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. God's response is, give them what they want. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, they're doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, give them what they want. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God, it's kind of like a last warning. So God says to Samuel, they've rejected you, uh, not so much you, but they've rejected me. But before you give them a king, give them a warning and tell them what the king that they really want is going to be like. That's fair, right? God's warning them ahead of time. This is what you say you want. This is what you're going to get. Are you sure this is what you want? So you see this in 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18. It's just this litany. So he says, Samuel says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He's going to take your sons. And they're going to work on his farm, his harvest, and his fields. And he's going to take your daughters. And they're going to become bakers and perfumers. He's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and orchards. The best of anything you have is his. He'll take a tenth, 10% of your grain and your vineyard. He'll give it to his officers and his servants. The cost is racking up there, isn't it, on the kind of king they want. He'll take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men, the best of your livestock. He's going to take a tenth of your flocks. And listen to this. And you will be his slaves. Now remember who the Jews are. They're the descendants of slaves. And so God says through Samuel, the king you want will be your master and you'll be his slave. It's like, is this really what you want? Do you want to become slaves again? He says, in fact, it's going to get bad. You're going to cry out because of your king. You're going to say, Lord, not so much. This isn't really what we wanted. But it says God will not hear you in that day. You've said you want something. You really, really want it. God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. But be warned, this is what it's going to look like. How do they respond? Well, they say we really, really, really want that king. Later there in chapter 8, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. It's like their last chance, right? Refuse to obey. They say, no, but there shall be a king over us because we want to be like all the nations. And is that odd? Remember the whole thing with Israel. They're not like any other nation. They're the only nation on earth that has God, creator God, as their Lord and Savior and is present with them, right? So once they get the tabernacle, God's there. Nobody else can claim that. God is with them. They're his unique people. And they basically say, we don't want to be unique. We want to be like everyone else. Taking a giant step down. And that our king may judge us and may go out before us and fight our battles. They basically say, we want somebody we can trust and we can see. So when danger comes, we want to say to that guy, to that king, you go take care of us. We don't want to trust God who's been taking care of us all along. We want something we can put our hands on. A king, somebody like us. Somebody like the nations. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Now listen to a couple other passages before we wind down from this. From 1 Samuel 10, Samuel said to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up 
out of Egypt. So God says, it wasn't Moses. I brought you up out of Egypt. He says, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. So it wasn't Moses and Joshua that delivered you. It wasn't the judges that delivered you. They were simply my instruments. I delivered you. I've kept you safe. I've brought you into the land. It wasn't humanity that did that. It's I that did that, God says. But you have rejected your God, your God who saves you. You've rejected the God that saves you. You have said to him, set a king over us. And then last in chapter 12, Samuel says, God was your king. Now remember, this is very clear. God says through Samuel, you're not rejecting a human leader. You're rejecting God as your king. You're saying you don't want God to be your king. You want some inferior person. You don't want God as king. This is an utter rejection of God himself. Samuel said, your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So guys, these people are just like us, right? They want security. They want their social security account to be enforced. They want to make sure, you know, you've got a good economy and there's food on the table. They just want the things that all of us want, right? And they're just looking for some kind of guarantee and they think the guarantee is a king like the rest of the nations have. We can't really see God. He's hiding in the tabernacle. We know he's there. We make sacrifices, but we can't see him. We want somebody we can see, somebody like us. We can tell them, hey, you go help us out. And it's the rejection of God Himself, He says repeatedly. And before we move on, because we're just like them, right? We're no different, right? Our humanity is no different today than it was back then. Maybe arguably it's worse, but not better, certainly. So ask yourself, just pause for a second, when we're making requests of God, is it possible that God knows the thing we're asking for is not in our best interest? Is that a possibility? I'm asking God to give me something. I really want something. Is it possible that God might be saying no to that? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, I'm sure you've asked things from God that He has not complied with. And if He didn't comply, that means what you wanted was not a good thing or not a good thing for you at that time. But is it possible that some of the things we're requesting of God are not, in fact, God's goodwill for us? And that's why He's not complying with our request. Are we placing any desire over our desire for that relationship with God Himself? You remember that because we're made for God, when we try and supplant God as the ultimate need in our lives, security in our lives, desire of our lives, we've really fallen into a form of idolatry. No one else and nothing else can fill that spot that we're made for, for God. So if we defer, if we go down in any way, we're suffering some form of idolatry. C.S. Lewis, lots of great quotes from him, but this is one. Heaven is us saying to God, your will be done. And hell is God saying to us, your will be done. That's profound, isn't it? And sometimes our requests to God are not for our good. And we don't know it in the moment. In the moment, it sounds like that's the thing. I really want it. It's really good. I really desire it. Lord, just bow to my will. Give me what I want and everything's good. And sometimes it's the very worst thing God could do for us as it was in the time for Israel with the king that they're going to get. But you know, in that, God's providing us. And by the way, 
Uh, the end of the ages are upon us, right? We've got 2,000 years since the completion of the Bible. Jesus died and rose again. How responsible are we versus generations earlier? We're more responsible. We have more information. We're accountable for more light. So we've got to take these things very, very seriously. So they're going to get the king they want. It's 1 Samuel 9. So God says, give them what they want. You've warned them. They really, really want a king. So I'm going to give them a king, the kind of king they think they want. So 1 Samuel 9 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekaroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. So he's not a poor guy, he's a wealthy guy. And he has a son whose name was Saul. Now listen to the description of Saul. He's handsome, really handsome. He's young. He looks virile. But also... Uh, he's not only more handsome, but he is shoulder. His, he's a head taller than anyone else around him. You know, think of an NBA basketball player. You know, the strongest of that, that group. You know, tall, rugged, handsome, looks like an athlete, looks like a warrior. And that's what Saul looks like. So if you just looked at Saul, you'd say, man, that's, that's the kind of king I'm talking about. But guys, if you think back to a lesson we did at the end of Judges, th- think about this. If I'm a Jew... And I'm reading through these stories consecutively from Judges, even if I defer for a brief time in Ruth. If I read the end of Judges and then I read Samuel and I read that my king comes from Gibeah in Benjamin, what's going through my mind? Is that a good thing? What's the last story we had in the end of the book of Judges about Gibeah and Benjamin? Well, wow. Well, Gibeah is that place where The men of the city ravaged to death the Levite's concubine, wife. The men of Gibeon. What did the tribe of Benjamin do when Israel said, make this thing right? The tribe rose up in a civil war. And what happened in that? Well, tens of thousands of Jewish men died in battle. So the last time we heard about Benjamin and Gibeah was that travesty. Now think about this for a second too. Saul's life follows directly that in a timetable. If you looked at the timeline, Saul's directly after that. Where do you think that would have put his father's and his father and his uncles? In all likelihood, they were right in the middle of that. What kind of upbringing, what kind of morality, what kind of thought about godliness do you think Saul grew up with? Probably not the best. Probably not the best. So he's handsome. And not only is he handsome, but you've also got this initial story where for a brief shining moment, the nation thinks they got everything they want because he's physically, he looks like what they want. And then this first story that's about Saul as king comes up and it's glowing. So the first story is Jabesh Gilead, a city on the east side of the Jordan River. And that should ring our bell if we read straight through from, from Judges 2. Why is that? Well, because you remember Israel destroyed most of the men, most of the city of Jabesh Gilead earlier so that they could take 400 virgins to give them as wives to the men of Benjamin so the tribe of Benjamin wouldn't go out. They had no women left. They were wiped out in the war. So they essentially wiped out most of the people of the area of the city of Jabesh Gilead to get those women to give them to the men of Benjamin to continue having families. So So Jabesh Gilead, the same town, repopulated. The Ammonites have come up against it. And these guys are in trouble and they know it. And so Nahash said, I'll give you one of two choices. We can give siege to the city and we'll destroy you all. 
Or you can let us in, you can surrender, we'll gouge out the right eye of everyone here because we want to dish you and we want to dish the whole nation of Israel. So you take your choice. And they say, well, give us a little bit of time and we'll get back with you. And so they send out and they ask anybody to come and help us. And so Saul is the new king. And so he raises an army. And remember, Saul or Saul's soldiers would have had relatives because some of those mothers were from Jabesh Gilead. These would be some of their sons. So they go to help. And guys, it's grand because they rout the Ammonites. It's a glorious victory. And listen to the way it ends. Samuel's there and he says, hey, let's go back to Gilgal where the Lord's presence was and let's renew the kingdom. Let's go back to God. Let's say, God, we're on your side and you're on our side. So they go back there. They made Saul king. They reaffirmed Saul's our guy. They sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And you say, man, everything's great. Swimmingly good. God said, you really don't want this king, but we said, we really do. And look what we got. We got this strapping version of a man and he's gone out and he's led the battle and he saved the guys of Jabesh Gilead. It's good. It's all good. Or is it? Because that doesn't last long, does it? If you read through Samuel, it's sort of a, it's a depressing book to me. And there's lots of lessons in there, but it's, it's somewhat of a depressing book. Before I forget, let me see where I'm at. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm in the right place. Okay, so what happens after this high point early on? The rest of Saul's life is basically one point of disobedience after another. He never obeys God again. The rest of the story. He not only doesn't obey God, he disobeys God time after time after time after time. He not only disobeys God, but he tries to kill God's choice for his replacement. We could say Saul is not so much as a king as an anti-king. He's not so much as a Christ figure as a, an anti-Christ figure. So in chapter 13, Saul foolishly took on the role of a priest. If you remember, and guys, these are just highlights of a bunch of stories that we're just rolling through, okay? So the Philistines are attacking and the guys start spreading because they're losing some battles. And Samuel hasn't come to sacrifice for them. And Saul's afraid. I'm losing all my soldiers. So what does he do? He takes on himself the role of a priest. And he goes and he offers these sacrifices, trying to keep the guys together, imploring God's help. And Samuel shows up and says, what in the world are you doing? And he says, well, I was afraid. And so I waited for you. You didn't show. So I, you know, so I made myself do these sacrifices to keep the guys. And God said this in part. You've not kept the command of the Lord. You're disobedient. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And he goes on to say, God's looking for a man after his own heart. We know who that will be next. You get to chapter 14. Saul makes this rash vow. Do you remember uh, Jonathan had gone up and defeated a garrison of Philistines and all the Jewish army comes to chase the Philistines too. And Saul tells everybody you can't eat anything until the end of the day. Because I want my revenge. It's about me and it's about my feelings. And this sounds just like Samson, the judge Samson. He, he never acted in the, the interest of the nation. It was always about Samson, what he wanted for himself. And you see exactly the same thing here with Saul. You get to chapter 15 and it's sort of, it, it's the worst. So God has commissioned Saul and the army of Israel to go to the Amalekites who had opposed Israel when they came up into the land. 
And he said, you treat them just like we treated the city of Jericho. All of the Amalekites are under the ban. Destroy all the Amalekites and all of their livestock. Nothing's to be left. And so Saul goes down there with his army and he obeys part of what God said. And he feels really good about his obedience and his disobedience. And so he sets up a monument to himself. This is interesting. So he thinks, I've done such a good job, I'm going to set up a monument here to my great work on God's behalf. And then he goes up and Samuel comes down. And Samuel says, what in the world is going on? And Saul says, hey, we did it. We went down, we wiped him out. And Samuel says, well, then why do I hear sheep and livestock? What's going on with that? And Saul says, hey, not to worry. You know, we spared the best to come up and, and sacrifice those to the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And Samuel says, you know, his response, I, I hope you've heard it before. It's a famous response. Samuel says, for God, this. Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God care about your version of sacrifice? He doesn't. He cares about His version, which is obedience. He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To do what God said is better than coming to God afterwards and saying, Here, here's a token. I do as I please, but I give you a token that I'm really yours. And I, and I put it under your name and say, Aren't I great? Aren't we good? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Presumption, presuming to sit in judgment on God's word and God's commands is like idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Now in this image, uh, Saul seizes the robe of Samuel as Samuel's leaving him, right? And a piece of his robe is torn off. And Samuel said, this is what's happening to you. God is tearing the kingdom out of your hands and He's giving it to your neighbor who is better than you. God gave Israel the king they wanted, but He was a carnal, fleshly, anti-king. And God's going to give them His choice of king, of course, in the next, which is going to be King David. And listen to this, last, last verse on Saul. Uh, chapter 16, verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from God tormented him. You remember when David wrote Psalm 51? He said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, I've sinned and I know it. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from you. That's not a Christian song. You know, we say today as, as Christians, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a believer, Romans 8 says. Every Christian has the Spirit of God. That's, the Spirit is God's stamp of possession on us. You'll never lose your salvation. You can't. This was the anointing of God on the king. The, the presence of the Spirit came on people that weren't necessarily in a faith relationship with God, and Saul was not. And so the Holy Spirit leaves him, and David knew that. So David says, I don't want to blow it like that. I don't want you to take your power from me, your influence from me, your enabling by your Spirit for me to do what you want me to do, as you did from Saul. David saw that. So the Spirit of God left Saul, and God sends a tormenting spirit Instead, now what do you see in the rest of the book of Samuel from here out? You see Saul chasing David. And think about this for just a minute. God has anointed David as the next king. He's removed his anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit from Saul. Before God, David is the new king. And what does Saul try and do to him? He tries to kill him. 
he tries to replace him. He wants to stand in King David's place. He's an anti-king. He's an anti-Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same thing, right? God's anointed one. So he's opposed now to God's anointed one. He's not the king. He's the anti-king. And you get variations on this. Saul hurls spears at David to kill him. He marries his daughter Michael to David, hoping that Michael will be coercive with her dad against him. He sends him out in wars against the Philistines, hoping the Philistines will kill him. He chases David all through the land of Judea. You remember that? David has to hide from him. And two times, David could kill Saul. Saul's within a sword reach of King David, and he doesn't kill him because he says, God anointed him. Who am I to strike down God's anointed? But that's exactly what Saul was trying to do to David. Exactly the thing. In fact, it gets so bad, David sends his parents out of the country to Moab, where their grandmother had come from, Ruth. And he and himself, with his wind, go over to, of all places for safety, they go to the Philistines. Israel's arch enemy. He's safer there than he is in the land of promise because of King Saul. It's like Ishmael persecuting Isaac. This is talked about in Galatians. Isaac was the child of promise. Saul persecutes the king of God's choosing, God's version of his anointed. So Saul looked the part. And initially they were really glad to have him. But when they got what they really, really wanted, they figured out it wasn't what they really, really needed. And God had warned them, but in the end, he had given them what they asked for. Pause for a moment again. Are we setting our heart on things and people merely because of their appearance? Remember, that was the thing with Saul. He looked the part, didn't he? He looked the part. Guys, whether it's a spouse, a future spouse, a friend, a politician, a business leader, you name it. If we are in situations where we can choose who is going to be the influence over us, are we looking past mere appearances to character, to ethics, to morality, to substance. You know, in Luke's gospel, it says that we become like the people that are above us. Every student becomes like his teacher. People above us have influence on us. What kind of influence are we choosing for ourselves in the friends we make, the spouses we pursue, the employers we work for, you name it? Is it based solely on appearance, the things that look good to the world? Are we looking a bit deeper as God did? And of course, he'll bring that up when he chooses David because Samuel suffers from the same affliction Israel did. Later in David's story, Samuel sees David's older brother. And what is he? He's this tall, good-looking guy. And Samuel says to himself, man, this must be the guy because he looks just like Saul. It's like, really? You remember what God says? You look on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Are we looking past outward appearances when we choose influences over us? We're going to take a left turn here, guys, to to pursue this. So, God is Israel's king. He really is, but he's rejected by Israel back there in Saul's day. And does that happen again? So, it's Christmas season. We're thinking about the incarnation. And the incarnation is God himself taking on our humanity, right? So, God in flesh. And God presents himself to Israel again as their king, doesn't he? in the person of God, the Son on earth. And what do they do with that? So God, in God the Son, Jesus on the earth, presents himself to Israel as their king. 
You remember when, when um, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, this was in Bill's Sunday school, on that little donkey, what was he saying? He was saying, I'm the king. Just like Solomon, his ancestor, right? The kings were introduced to the nation that way. And he goes to the temple. That's, we'll get into this next week. I suppose I should just leave that alone. But he claimed to be the king. And do you remember when, when John the Baptist is in prison, and he says, go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the one? I'm having second thoughts. I've got doubts. Are you really the one we're waiting for? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. He said, go and tell John the blind see, the lame walk. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus had quoted that earlier in Luke, Luke 4. I'm the one. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. John the Baptist was the one that says, prepare the way for the Lord. God himself is among you. What did we do collectively, Jews and Gentiles, when God, in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, presented himself to us as the king again? We rejected him again. Just as Saul would have done to David, we, in our ancestors, represented by Jews and Gentiles, we said no thank you to God as our king. So in John 5.43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. I have the authority of the Father. Your God that you worship Yahweh, His stamp is on me, and you've said no thank you to me. John 5.43. In the image you see here, Jesus is before Pilate. You remember after all the miracles, all the attesting signs, at that Passover, the Jewish leaders finally get what they want. They arrest Jesus. They bring him before Pilate. They want to kill, but they don't have the authority to do so. So they bring him to Pilate and they say, this is a bad guy and you should crucify him. He's usurping our power and our influence, our livelihood and lifestyle. And Pilate's not buying it. Isn't that interesting? The Gentile governor is not buying their line. He knows that they're jealous against Jesus. And so he's not easily won over to this. He's looking for a way to get Jesus out but he's also leery of an uprising or a riot. So he's a politician after all at the end of the day. So he says, hey, I've got a deal for you. You Remember that every year at this time we release a prisoner for you. And I think what's going through Pilate's mind is this. I'm going to offer them the worst of the worst and then Jesus. And they'll choose Jesus, of course, release Jesus. So he says, hey, I've got Barabbas. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what the other gospels do. Barabbas is a thief and he's a murderer. He's not a nice guy. So Pilate says, which one do you want? Do you want the thief and the murderer or do you want Jesus who's healed the lame, given sight to the blind, etc.? It should be an easy choice. And what do they say? They say, give us Barabbas. That's like Israel saying, give us Saul. That's like us saying anything. Give us anything but Jesus. Give us anything but God himself. That's exactly the same thing. So Jews and Gentiles, representative of us all, say to this second offer of God himself as king, saying, we, we say, no, thank you. So Pilate says, well, what should I do with him? And of course, they yell out, they scream out, crucify him, crucify him. And that's exactly what the Romans do. Jews and Gentiles, think of Psalm 2, quoted in Acts, Jews and Gentiles reject the Lord of glory for their version of what they want. This is another left leg, but I, and Bill, by the way, brought these up in Sunday school that there was a happy correlation, a lot of those same themes. So God presented himself to Israel as king. They say, no, thank you. God presented himself to Israel and Gentiles again in Jesus, and we all said, no, thank you. And friends, this story isn't over, right? In this whole series, the thing is to look for Christ's appearing, right? Now we're thinking of Christmas, but there's a bigger appearing to come. 
That's history. Jesus came in history. We're glad for that. No forgiveness of sins without that coming, for sure. But we are supposed to, as Christians, be looking for the appearing of Jesus. In the air, he calls us to himself, 1 Thessalonians 4. What happens, though, along the way with this same paradigm about God's choice of himself as king versus what we want, what we really, really want? Well, that story's not over. So very briefly, and I think you've got all these references on your study sheet, so you can look at those later. Daniel 7, there is a parade of of beasts on a stormy sea that Daniel sees brought before God before God sets up his final kingdom, headed up by his Messiah. And along the way, he says, by the way, he describes one of these kings as he looked like a little horn. Horns were symbols of power in Scripture. He looks like a little guy. And Daniel's interested in this little horn, this king, and he says, well, what about this king? And he says, well, he's different from the others. He speaks words against the Most High. Don't be deceived, basically, by his physical stature. He speaks words against the Most High. He has a bold face. He's filled with pride. He becomes great. He rises up against the Prince of Princes. That's another title for Jesus. The Prince of Princes. This little guy thinks to take on the King of Kings, the Prince of Princes. He's called a little horn there. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, the Christians back then thought they'd missed the second coming of Jesus. They're, they're confused about prophecy and what was coming and when. And so Paul tells them that the day of the Lord can't come unless someone comes first. And now that little horn is called the man of lawlessness. Same person. And what does he do? He exalts himself above every so-called object of worship. And do you remember what it says next? That he stands in the holy place and declares himself God. And Daniel said he would. And Jesus said he would in Matthew 24. And we call that the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate. And last, and this is a quick tour, sorry. I hope our heads aren't spinning, sorry. Any one of these things we've developed, right? You'd have several lessons on. We don't have that. I just want to make the point that this point-counterpoint isn't done. That God offering Himself to the world and what the world says I really, really want, it's not done. And it won't be done until the second coming. And even after that, it won't be done at that point either. Revelation 13, that little king, the man of lawlessness, is now said to be one of a king of this empire. And it says that it looks like he was slain, he was killed, but he came back to life. And so people look at this guy and they say, he's our guy. And in fact, they say this language, uh, every tribe, people, language, on the nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. And they basically say, who can mess with the beast? You can't even kill him. He's our man. He's our king. And that's what they choose. The world chooses, not Christ, but we call him Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. It's all the same person. This is not done. The world's going to embrace the Antichrist just like Israel embraced Saul. It's the same thing. Ultimately, the rebellion of the world against its maker culminates in a king desired by the masses, supplied by Satan, to oppose God himself in the person of King Jesus. That's where we're still going. So the king is coming. Christ is returning. But before his return, the world is going to say, this is the guy we want, we really, really want. And God's going to give the world what they really, really want. And it won't be what they really, really need. That's still where we're headed. 
So in winding down, let me ask just a few questions. The big question, the only question that matters at the end of the day is, have we chosen God's king? Have we personally said yes to God's king? Have we personally submitted ourselves to King Jesus? You know, and it's interesting, most of us humans, we think that we're sort of this neutral agent and we choose heaven or hell, right? That, we, that life sort of is, is at my feet and I, I say yes or no as it pleases me. But the biblical paradigm is no, you're, you're a citizen of, of hell's kingdom right now. You didn't make that choice. You were born into that and you've chosen it. So you're in the kingdom of darkness. The only choice you, you have to make or can make is do I stay in the kingdom of darkness or do I get out? Do I continue to submit to the God of this world or do I submit my life to my Savior and my King and my God in the person of Jesus? Have we done that? That's all that matters at the end of the day. We don't want to get what we want. We want to get what God wants for us. He knows what we need. So that's the first thing. And guys, let me ask you this. If we said, yeah, I've bowed to King Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my King. Do we live like it? Christmas or otherwise. Now, showing up at church on Sunday morning is a relatively easy, painless thing to do. I don't say it doesn't count. Thanks, Rick. Hello? (laughs) Still got that broken phone. (laughs) He can't turn the ringer off. Um, Sorry, where was I before Rick upset me here? It made me lose my... Yeah, yeah. Uh, last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, the Jews are going to church. They're just like us. They're going to church. They're going to synagogue. They're going to the temple. And you know what God says based on what they're doing? He says, close the doors and go away because I have no interest in what you're doing. They're offering sacrifice. And you know what they're giving him? They're giving him the worst of what they have. And God says, you know what? I'm a great king and I don't need this and I don't want it. And I will be worshipped by the Gentiles in ways that you, my people, don't worship me. What kind of citizens of heaven, of King Jesus, are you and I? Is obedience an option? Do we say, well, I might or I might not. That's just like Saul, right? I do the part I like. I don't do the part I don't like. And then I come to God and say, and it's all for you, Lord. It's all for you. Is that the way we live? Now, all of us sin, and we're not saying we don't have areas of sin in our life, right? But as residents of God's kingdom, what do we do? We say, Lord, we need your grace. And we need your spirit. We need your truth. And we need each other. And we want to see it advancing militarily, if you will, in our own lives in those areas where they're not honoring to you. That's fine. That's good. That's where we all live and grow. But has King Jesus become our king? And think of this for just a minute. King Saul and the Antichrist are paradigms. They are versions of... of life that you and I can choose. And if I have any hope for joy on this earth or eternal joy, do I really want to set it on people like Saul or like the little horn, the man of lawlessness, the one who replaces or opposes Christ? Is that really where I want to set my hope? Because as a resident of the kingdom of this world, that's where my hope is set. Is that really where I want to live? I hope not. Guys, let me wind down with this. My father, he bought me that big red bike. And I was really not happy about that at first. I really, really was not. But you know what? I came to love that bike. I was 10 and I probably rode that bike for four, five, six years until I had a driver's license. 
And you know what? I didn't outgrow it. My friends outgrew those stingrays. You know that? I could do everything on my big red bike they could do on their stingray and more. And I didn't pedal as much because my tires were bigger to go as far as they did. And I loved that bike. And afterwards, it's like, man, I am so glad my dad bought me that big red bike. I forgot to mention, by the way, and I shouldn't. Um, when I was at K-State, there was a very attractive young woman. She was tall and slender. She looked like a model, long blonde hair. And her name happened to be Kathy. And I sort of set my, my wants, my desires on Kathy. We had some things in common, and, and I knew I could make Kathy my own. A little work, I could, I could make this thing happen. But I'd just come to faith in Christ. And we had these talks about spiritual matters. And guys, I was messed up. I was still, as an early Christian, I, was, I didn't know up from down still. But I knew who Jesus was. I knew where I was going. knew who I belonged to. And I, and I had this funny feeling that she and I probably weren't quite on the same page. She was moral and, and, and at least religious, but I just wasn't sure. Well, time and tide, I ended up back here. I didn't continue at K-State. And uh, I started seeing this other gal, kind of broken over a lot of distance and time. And uh, I kid you not, I was in an airport, and I'd been talking to my wife, then my significant other, uh, about getting married. I happened to be back in Kansas. I was leaving on a flight to go back to uh, the Northwest Coast. And I kid you not, I came out of the men's bathroom. I had left Kathy with a friend in the airport terminal weeping because Mike's leaving. And I'd asked her to think about marrying me. And there was a lot of confusion, which I won't go into. But she's weeping. I come out of the men's bathroom, and do you know who I saw directly in front of me? The other Kathy in the airport, right in front of me. I'd never seen her since K-State, and she's right in front of me. And you know what I realized in the moment? I have to choose Kathy or Kathy. (laughs) I've got to choose the Kathy that back in the day I really, really wanted. And man, maybe I, I could make this thing happen again, but then Kathy is up there, and it's like, I know, who I, I know who God wants for me. And so, it was good for me. <laughs> you don't make these things up, do you? That was not a cue. Uh, yeah. And I knew, and I never saw her again. I've never seen her again. But I knew just God was saying, man, make up your choice. Do you want what you wanted back in the day, or do you want the one that I was convinced God wanted for me? And you know, I could not tell you how happy I've been to have this Kathy as my wife. I mean, words wouldn't tell, and I can't tell you how often I think, man, we were a perfect match for each other. We were so fit for each other, our personalities and gifts and calling, you know, all of that. It's like, I'm glad I didn't get the one I originally wanted, and I'm glad God gave me the grace to hold out for the one he wanted for me. I knew some of the things I wanted. God knew what I needed. And that should be true for each of us. Are we willing to hold out for the people, the things, the places, the times that God wants for us? Guys, the worship team can come up. I'll close with this from Psalm 84. Hang your hat on this. Psalm 84 ends this way. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He's the one who shines down blessings on you, and he's the one that gives you real protection. He bestows favor and honor in the sight of others. And listen to this, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will God withhold from you. If it's a good thing, God won't keep it from you. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen.